Travis wanted me to talk about um, like a beginner's guide to speaking in tongues, but I felt, <laughs> I felt it'd be better to just keep going with the larger catechism. Yeah, so with that, let's, let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, our Lord and our God, we praise you and we thank you for this day, this opportunity to meet together. Pray that you would um, fill us with understanding as we study uh, the catechism, that you would grow us and that you would draw us near to yourself, Lord, that you would prepare us to worship you this morning. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So over the past few months, we've been talking about Christ, looking at Christ as the mediator uh, of the covenant of grace. We've seen why it's necessary that the mediator be God as well as man, fully God and fully man. Um, We're going to touch on that a little more today. We've also looked at how Christ executes the offices of prophet, priest, and king, Um, how he reveals the whole will of God to his people as prophet, How as priest, he offers himself as an acceptable sacrifice to God, and how as king, he rules and reigns all things. And so now, you guys, if you have a handout, you're going to see that this week we're going to be talking about Christ's humiliation. So with that, I'm going to read the question, and then let's read the answer together. Question 46 of the larger catechism. What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? The estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death until his resurrection. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking more about this in depth. I think Will's teaching next week and Sam the following week and so on and so forth. So this week, the the goal is to just try and give us a bird's eye view of what the humiliation of Christ um, looks like. So with that said, let's hop in and define some terms. Um, The question, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? Now, when I first read that question, I thought, estate, huh? I've heard that word before. You know, uh, estate planning or, you know, when my wife says, hey, Chad, there's an estate sale, let's go. Um, That's not what what the word in the question means. Does anyone have any guesses, children, young Folk, you guys have any guesses on what that word estate means? Yes, sir. Um, like, our state? like Texas? That's a good guess. That's I was <laughs> not not quite. That is a state, or if you're Robert, estate. <laughs> what what is meant by that is 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 condition. Um, it defines it, uh, Webster's Dictionary. We have a copy of the 1828 Webster's Dictionary at home, and it defines a state as the condition or circumstances of any person or thing, whether high or low. And actually, that version of Webster's references Luke chapter 1, uh, where Mary, while pregnant with our Lord, is speaking to Elizabeth and says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Who has looked upon the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Luke 146 through 49. So Mary was not a high status member in society at the time. She had no great wealth that we know of, no family estate that she could rely upon, which she had claimed to. From a worldly view, there was nothing overly special about her. She came from a humble estate. Um, second, second word we should probably define in the question is 
is humiliation. Max, what is meant by humiliation? Is it like, is it like shooting the game-winning basket for another team, the other team? Or like um, when, when your brother finds and reads your personal diary? Is that... Is that... <laughs> Good. Good, I'm glad I could use you as an example. Uh, <laughs> It's not talking about that. What Christ, uh, we're, we're not saying that Jesus was humiliated um, with the shame that follows in the sense that we get humiliated um, when, again, shooting the basket for the other team or confidently calling someone the wrong name at church for the past few months. Right, Steve? Um, <laughs> Christ's humiliation, the humiliation of Christ here is talking about a, a willing humbling of himself. Jesus humbled himself. He, he, he chose to do that. There was, no, there was no shame or obligation. He chose to humble himself. And that's, when we use the word humiliation, that's what we're talking about. Um, we're going to get into Philippians 2 uh, a, little, a little bit further down, but for now, you know, Paul says in Philippians 2, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ's humiliation was a willing decision that, made, that was made in submitting to the will of the Father. So let's, we'll, we'll move on to the answer now. We're, we are going to take it, yeah, we're going to take it a chunk at a time. So we'll start with, the estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition. So Christ's estate was that low condition during his time on earth. He humbled himself taking on the form of a servant. So that means before that, his estate was not a low condition. So we're going to look at a few verses that tell us about who Christ is in his deity before he became incarnate, before he humbled himself. Can someone get me uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5? Go ahead, Asher. Asher, Asher, hang on. Good job. Speak up just a little bit more, okay? Thank you, sir. So this tells us that Christ was in the beginning. Uh, he was with God, and he was God. He, he's the creator and sustainer of all things. Can someone read Colossians 1, 15 through 20? Anyone have that? Travis, thank you, sir. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. By the blood of his 
So, so again, just trying to reiterate, Jesus is a, Christ is eternal. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. Uh, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is preeminent. <clears throat> He's also holy. Can someone turn to Isaiah 6, 1 through 5 for me? You got it, Calvin? You going gonna to read up? Okay, that's all right. So, someone else, we'll get you later, Calvin. Okay, get ready. Hunter, go ahead. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, and, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of the Lord, and I dwell in the midst of the people of the Lord. And my eyes have seen the king. Thank you. So Isaiah here is describing what is called a theophany, a visible manifestation of God. Isaiah is in the temple, and all of a sudden the foundations of the threshold shake. He sees the six-winged angelic beings flying, singing, Holy, 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 to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. He sees the pre-incarnate Christ sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And I think his response is very striking. Uh, he, he's undone. Woe is me. I am undone. I'm, I'm, my life is unraveled. Because he realizes, being in the presence of God, he sees his sin and his guilt for what it is. He's a man of unclean lips. He sees the one whom he's, who he's sinning against. And it's, it's all at once. It's not like, um, it's not like the, when the Lord sanctifies us, it's, it's very progressive. It takes, it takes time. He did this to Isaiah in, in, a, in a moment. Um, and there's nothing he could do. He couldn't hide from God. He couldn't try and justify his sin or compare himself to, to others. Uh, he knew that God saw him for what he is and saw his sin rightly. Um, so he's holy, right? So we know God, we know Christ is, is eternal. He's a creator and sustainer. He's holy. Uh, Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. He's sovereign. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, (laughs) My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Again, just trying to, just trying to reiterate, God is, God is sovereign. What, he, what pleases Him, He does. Whatever He pleases, He does whatever He pleases. He's not under compulsion or obligation to do anything. No one can force God to do anything. And yet, 
this holy, eternal, sovereign, creating, sustaining God, willingly chose to humble himself and take on the form of a servant. Why would the one true and living God do such a thing? Why would he enter into his own creation, taking on a human nature, living as lawgiver under the law, the holy God entering this sinful and cursed world, not as royalty, human royalty as some might expect, but to common parents? Why would he willingly do this? Children, why did, why did Christ come? To save us. Very good. And that means that we, we needed saving, right? We needed to be saved. Um, he came for our sake, is what the answer says. The catechism answer says, he came for our sake. Uh, I'm going to read chapter 8 of our confession, section 2. Puts it this way. <clears throat> the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man? Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So it is for our sake that God took on humanity. We needed a mediator because our sin and guilt made us incapable of accessing the throne of grace. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism answered to question 19. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, and are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Because of our sin and misery, or because of our sin, we have misery, we are without hope and destined for hell. Uh, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we had a great need of a Savior, and as the Catechism says, God was pleased to save us. Okay, I have another question for the children, the young people. When the Catechism answer says, for our sake, who is the hour in that, question, in that answer? Is that everybody in the whole world? Yes, Ren. Is that everybody, or is that just God's elect? Yeah, that's right, young people. It's, it's God's elect. We were talking about God's elect, the ones from whom all eternity God had predestined to everlasting life. This should encourage us that Christ did not have to come and save you, yet it pleased him to do so. Can someone turn and read John 6, verse 38 for me? You got it, Calvin, this time? Okay.
That's right. And the first part of that verse, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Again, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father and the Son... As a a faithful son, Christ willingly submits to his Father in heaven. And so, as the Son submits to the will of the Father, the catechism answer goes on to tell us that that he emptied himself of his glory. What does that mean, that Jesus emptied himself of his glory? Does that mean that there were aspects of his glory, his deity, that he gave up? During this time, during his time on earth, did he become less than fully God when he became man? No. No, of course not. But you may be thinking to yourself, well, hang on a minute. Philippians 2.7 says that Jesus emptied himself. So what did, what did he empty himself of if he was fully deity before he took on humanity? Let's look at verse. Or let's look at uh, Philippians two five through eight. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the term emptied himself is translated in the New King James as, as made himself of no reputation. The, Ref- the Reformation Study Bible fleshes out this phrase by saying that the phrase emptied himself means that he humbled himself, not relinquishing his divine being, but embracing dishonor by becoming human. And as we've already discussed, Jesus is fully God. He can never not be God. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. The Son can never stop being the Son. So even though he took on human flesh, Jesus was no less God than he had ever been in all eternity. But what about when, Matt, when Jesus says in Matthew twenty four thirty six, but concerning the, that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So if Jesus is fully God, shouldn't he be all-knowing, omniscient? But he says he does, not even the Son knows the day or the hour. Or how about uh, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So is Jesus, the, the Father and the Son, do they have different wills? I thought they were existed in perfect unity together from before the foundations of the earth. Jesus in these verses is not speaking from his divine nature, but rather from his human nature as a man. To reiterate what we read from the confession earlier, in speaking of Christ becoming man, uh, chapter 8.2, there are two whole, perfect, and distinct natures. The Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Even in Christ's humanity, he retains all his deity. 
And there's a very important theological doctrine that Elder Lewis brought up a few weeks ago in discussing this aspect of Christ being fully God and fully man, dwelling together in one person. Does anyone remember what that theological doctrine is called? What's that? Very good. Good job. Uh, yeah, the hypostatic union, right? Jesus, fully God, fully man, not that he is 50% God or 50% man, a demigod like, like you know, the Greek myth Hercules. He is 100% God and 100% man. But like with any Christian doctrine, um, there are always heresies that we need to be aware of, heresies we need to pay attention to. Um, in light of Jesus emptying himself, uh, you know, take, humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant, there's this heresy called the kenosis theory. Has anyone heard of that before? Nobody, huh? Yes, yeah. The kenosis theory is the idea that when Christ took on humanity, he gave up some of his deity. Now, we've already spoken a fair bit, uh, used verses and, and, and confession references and refutation of this, but I think it, there's, we should repeat it just for repeating sake. So we hammer this point home. Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And Romans 9.5, Paul says that God is God over all. Colossians 1.19, For in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. So when the answer to our catechism question talks about Christ emptying himself, we can understand that as Christ laying aside, we can understand that as Christ laying aside the status and privileges that are his in, that are his in heaven, or that he veiled his glory, or chose to occupy a low estate of a servant, but he never stopped being fully God. <clears throat> yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, the last part of our answer to our question of the estate of Christ's humiliation is that he took upon the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death until his resurrection. Can someone uh, get me Mark 10.45? Someone else get me Luke 22, verse 27. Forty-five. Yes, sir. Even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to uh, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Good, thank you. And Luke twenty-two, twenty-seven. I can get it. Thanks, Justin. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one as the one who serves. And uh, John six thirty eight, again Jesus says, "For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but my will, the, but the will of him who sent me." And thinking back again to Philippians two, he he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So so. Christ taking on the form of a servant can be seen uh, not only in his serving people around him, but more importantly, being, being obedient to the Father, um, serving, his, serving the Father 
doing his will even unto death. This should, this should humble us to see the God of the universe taking on flesh, all that that entails, all that we've talked about um, for, for our sake. He grew in the womb of his own creation. He lived as a first century Jew under the law. He was tempted in every way. He was despised and rejected by men. He was called the man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was betrayed, tortured, and crucified on a cross. He was forsaken by the Father. Christ willingly humbled himself through all of this for your sake, believer. She give us great joy and encouragement that we would be counted among God's elect. That God was pleased to condescend himself uh, to, this great degree, to this great of a degree should cause us to praise and magnify his name. And quoting Thomas Vincent, just Christ's humiliation doth assure us of our redemption through the merits of his sufferings. He's quoting Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And again, I, I apologize, this was shorter than I expected it to be. Does anyone have any questions? Right, you you didn't you didn't intend to spill coffee on your white shirt. Your your the coffee on your white shirt is is embarrassing to you. Christ willingly chose to take on the form of a servant. He willingly condescended himself. It was not as though uh, he was unwilling to do that, and the father, you know, kind of poked and prodded at him to 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 come to earth as a man. He he and the father their the will their wills are are. United, right? They have, they they are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and so Christ willingly, <clears throat> joyfully chose to condescend Himself and take on the form of a servant. Pastor, I think also, and I think you touched on this a little bit earlier when you were talking about the confession references, but um, in Christ's humiliation, it's it's speaking to His willingness, but it's also of that glory and whatnot were not evident as he walked 
around in the flesh, right? And as he took on the form of a human in the flesh. Um, and of course, as we've studied before too, in his incarnation, it wasn't that he was a phantasm. It wasn't that he was just some type of, you know, being being God, that he just kind of, it wasn't like he was a holographic image or some other type of, uh, of uh, uh, depiction that people just saw, but it really, he, he really wasn't man, right? Those were some criticisms, those were some, uh, some objections and some, some heresies that some would try to spout, especially when considering the resurrection. Um, but he, no, he really truly is man. And we say he was and he is because he is still seated bodily, right? He rose bodily, he's seated bodily at the right hand of the Father, and he will return bodily. So when we talk about his humiliation, it's good to good to make that a part of that picture too of our understanding. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah. <laughs> sure, he, yeah, he was considered, you know, he, he was called the man of sorrows. You know, he, he was acquainted with grief. His, he, he, the, the son of man has, has no place to, to lay his head. He, he, he did not live an easy, cushy life. He experienced and it, it, all the same trials that, that we do, yet he was without sin. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet he remained faithful to his father. And I would say, all, you know, many of the joys in life too, right? He, he rejoiced with his friends and he, he, he got to experience the, the common blessings that we get to experience as, as humans living in God's world. Huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that is a joy, yes, sir. Well, if there's no more questions, let me let me close this with yes, sir. <laughs> I know. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> okay. That, that Christ humbled himself to such a low estate. He, he, the God of the universe, humbling himself to, to, to a man. And not just, and again, not, just, not a king, not a, someone in, a, uh, not royalty, uh, earthly royalty, but he lowered himself to a servant. He was born in a, you know, in a barn, right? He was born to poor parents. Um, that should cause us to remember, you know, to, to, to humble ourselves, not think of ourselves as <clears throat> better than, than we are. We should be looking at ourselves rightly. Yeah, I think it's, uh, that's good, Chad. I think it's also, it's, it's really awesome and um, should blow our minds and raise our joy, right? And in knowing that the infinite and eternal God became man. For us on a specific mission to save us um, and so he did so 
in order to do, in order to save us in all of the minute details that were required to do so, and um, and so that is a not only a, a tremendous and awesome uh, truth to understand, but just thinking about where he was and who he is, um, and where he came, and what he became. Um, his, his humiliation becomes all the more awesome and, uh, and fills our hearts with joy because he became like us. He had to be made like his brethren. And he accomplished then all that was required being our substitute. Um, and so uh, it is a huge doctrine in regards to our redemption, but it's also a huge doctrine in even our understanding of uh, theology proper and our understanding of the doctrine of God, right? And, uh, and of his love for us. So. What I get to reiterate, you know, over the next few weeks, we're going to be getting, getting into the weeds in this a little bit more. So um, this is more just a, 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 a broad overview. Um, yeah. But I, yes, sir. We talk sometimes about you know, errors of other religions. Um, one of the things that Mormons say is if they're good enough, they can become Christ to another planet. That doesn't work. No. And uh, another side of that is uh, and, you know, not here, but people think, well, there's probably humans on other planets. No. Better not be because they have no way out. They're done. Mm. Yeah. No, yeah. We, we have no hope without Christ. Yeah. Something, something good to remember too, you know, in light of Elder Lovelady's question, is that, you know, when he when he came, as Pastor brought up, he came, he came for us willingly, coming, taking on the form of a servant to to die for his people. But it wasn't it wasn't just generally for God's people. He had you, each one of you, myself included, in mind individually. He knew he was thinking of you, Robert. You know, maybe not like that in, in the sense that. <clears throat> He had a particular people, and he knew who his people were, and there, it was not just a general blanket, but individuals. He knew the individuals whom he was coming to save. Travis. Are you uh, familiar with the covenant of redemption? Within the Godhead? Sure. Yeah, of course. Isn't everybody? <laughs> <laughs> All right, other love lady, I think we're going to close in prayer now. <laughs> our Father and our King, we, we praise your name, O oh Lord, for, for you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Our God, we, we thank you for 
uh, humbling yourself, taking on the form of a servant for our sake, for condescending yourself to such a great extent and degree that um, to, to save us, Lord, for we cannot save ourselves. We, we needed you to come down. That is our only hope. Lord, we praise you for the finished work of Christ. We praise you for this, this body, O oh Lord, and we praise you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. We ask that you would prepare our hearts and, and draw us to yourself, and that as we leave this place today, Lord, let us be reminded of your truth, and, and let us use it to, uh, to honor and glorify you throughout this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.